This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by Alex Reinhardt, Alex Vaughn, Ali Towell, Allison Coulson, Andy Stolk, Anne Mahoney, Anthony Nuccio, Becky Condas, Ben Bartosik, Bob Gorman, Carlos Mosquita, Caroline D. Marcotte, Catherine Addington, Christina Bowen, Christine Bannon, Christopher Gelk, Claudio Macaluso, Creed Caldwell, Daniel Morris, and Dennis Elling. Those are just a few of our Patreon supporters. You guys make the show possible. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be shouting out all of our Patreon supporters. So if you didn't hear your name this week, stay tuned. It's coming in a, a later episode. But you guys make this possible. Thank you so much for all of your support. And if you didn't hear your name and you're not a Patreon supporter, maybe think about becoming one. Uh, we will be shouting you out if you do it in the next few weeks. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the averagely young, averagely hip, and averagely lay editors of American media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. <laughs> Why? Why, though? It's never just a hello <laughs> to the listeners. Oh, hello, everybody. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you sleepy, Zach? I just uh, came in this morning off a red eye that was delayed, uh, but I am uh, filled with a uh, drink that we're consuming thanks to olga what drink is that uh olga i'll let you take the league since you lead since you picked this one today i got us some luna nuda pinot grigio uh, as you listeners may have known i really enjoy wine so this week i brought us some white yeah and in the script the drink is just olga wine yeah <laughs> so basically i need to start making wine now is what i've got but this is this is among your favorites mm-hmm. it is one delicious. of my favorites and it's delicious so cheers 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 and who are we talking to this week, Olga? So today I'm really excited um, because we're talking with Julio Ricardo Varela. So along with Maria Hinojosa, and she's the anchor and executive producer of Latino USA on NPR. And together they host the In the Thick podcast, which is a political podcast where journalists of color tell you what you're missing from the mainstream news. And it's I've like been following them for years and I'm a huge fan of both of them. So I'm very excited that we, he's on. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What do we got, Olga? So next week, or August 25th through the 26th, is the World Meeting of Families, which will be happening in Dublin this year in Ireland. Um, and a town called Duro, which is 70 miles southwest of Dublin, um, they host this annual Scarecrow Festival, which started in 2001. Um, and it attracts a ton of visitors. They have this really intense Scarecrow Championship competition and this year the winner, the Conaghy Vintage Club, they won for their Pope Francis Popemobile Scarecrow. Yeah, and let, we just want to like give you a very strong yeah. image of what this is. So there's like a big Popemobile car and then a Pope Francis made of hay who's probably, I'd put him at like 20 feet tall um, and, uh, and he's kind of horrifying looking. He's <laughs> He's terrifying. He looks like something from Children of the Corn. Yeah, not, he's got not these like big Pope eyes. Francis. Yeah, he's kind of skinny. He, mm-hmm. you know, who he reminds me of? Salad fingers. Do you guys know? What nope. That is? Oh. Pretty weird. Yep. What's our next story, Ashley? A 27-year-old in uh, from in the lovely state of Virginia, uh, the Reverend Matt Souza, aka Pastor Susie, has started God Squad Church, uh, which is. We think the world's first online-only church for video gamers. So he, this is uh, comes under the Evangelical Assemblies of God denomination, uh, and his mission is to uh, bring God to video gamers who, in general, are not a very um, uh, church-going people. He, yeah, he it, says they tend <laughs> um, to so skew does, atheist, agnostic. Yeah, and so he uses. Um, 
a, the platform Twitch, which I'm going to ask Zach to uh, explain because I have no idea what that is, Twitch but to give sermons to people who are already on this platform. So there, Twitch is a website where you uh, can watch other people uh, play video games in real time, or you can broadcast yourself playing video games in real time. And so it's got a huge following. Um, as of July 2018, uh, Sousa is boasting 1,800 committed members, and the stream roughly draws 4,000 total viewers a week, according to Twitch's analytics. Yeah, and it's really interesting because he's kind of taking advantage of this sort of niche that he's in, and he says that, you know, as Christians, we are told to meet people where they are, and he's like, how are we going to completely ignore a community that a lot of these people might not be leaving their homes because they're just gaming? And he's like, you know, I'm going to meet them where they are, and I'm going to try to bring God to them. I was kind of skeptical when I read this headline. I was like, okay, like that. It's not real community. Um, but he has tried to, you know, like they form real, real relationships. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman who talked about losing her mother um, and being depressed and suicidal. And he like really he, he reached out to her in person um, and, you know, ministered to her as a pastor. Um, so like not unsimilar to what we're trying to do. Yeah, I guess I think the thing that is different with us is we think of ourselves as sort of an extension of a ministry of a larger church. And the question at hand is, can you have an online only church? Yeah. And he has hopes to start a physical parish. He's in he's outside of Richmond um, and he's raising money to actually have a church where people can gather. Um, but, you know, I think, like you said, you, you do have to meet people where they're at first and then hopefully draw them into deeper community from there. What's next, Olga? So this next story is coming from Argentina. On August 9th, the Senate voted down a bill that would have legalized abortion through 14 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and this has drawn a lot of comparisons to the referendum in Ireland earlier this year, um, when on May 25th, Ireland repealed the Eighth Amendment, which guaranteed the right to life of unborn children and made abortion illegal. Um, and many have been asking sort of what made the difference in what we saw in Argentina? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, these are both two like very historically Catholic countries and, and still Catholic today. Um, and they're both countries where in recent years they had passed same sex, made same sex marriage legal despite big campaigns by the Catholic Church to prevent that. So in Ireland, the Catholic Church kind of like stepped out of the abortion debate. Um, because they had lost a lot of credibility. Because they had uh, lost. Because of sex abuse. Correct. Um, in Argentina, uh, Charles Camosi, who's a, a scholar uh, who writes a lot about abortion uh, in the United States, said that in Argentina, there was a lot of outside influencers, like groups like Amnesty International were really pushing for this abortion bill. Um, and that so it wasn't really like a grassroots movement of people demanding you know, more permissive abortion rights and that he credits a lot of like the women politicians for really taking a stand and saying, no, this is not the direction our country wants to go in. Abortion is still illegal in a lot of countries in Latin America. So Argentina and Ireland will definitely serve as examples when other nations have similar debates. What's next, Zach? Uh, so our next story uh and we've got a lot of dimensions to this. Um, we want to give another update to the sex abuse crisis that's still breaking uh, in the U.S. church. Last week, we talked about the case of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Um, and since then, there's been a lot more news on the crisis. One of the priests who was prominently featured in the reporting that broke the McCarrick story is Father Boniface Ramsey. He's a priest from New York. Um, and in 2015, he sent a letter to Cardinal Sean O'Malley detailing the abuse and harassment harassment that he had heard had been committed by then Cardinal McCarrick. Um, 
and Cardinal O'Malley heads the Vatican's commission um, for protecting minors from clergy sex abuse. And is one of Pope Francis's closest advisors. Yes. So O'Malley says that he never received this letter, that it was dealt with by um, lower level staff who wrote back to Father Ramsey and said that this didn't really fall under their jurisdiction. But Father Ramsey had asked them, had said, you know, like, if this doesn't come under the Vatican Commission, like, please forward this to the correct people so that it can be dealt with, um, because these are credible rumors. And and Jesus said, you know, if you, you know, if it's not your into your jurisdiction, then do nothing about it. Yeah. And it appears that this, I mean, this letter did not reach the Vatican or Pope Francis. Um, so, that is not a good sign that the person who heads the Vatican Commission on Clergy Abuse. Um, that you could write a letter, like a priest with credible information could write a letter to him, addressed to him, and he not receive it or, you know, something else. Yeah. It's not not a good sign. And there are other developments in this crisis. Uh, a story that broke today uh, in Pennsylvania, right, Olga? Yes. And so today we're recording on Tuesday, uh, the 14th, an almost 1400 page report um, that chronicles seven decades of sexual abuse of children by priests in Pennsylvania. So this is coming out of a two year grand jury investigation that investigated six dioceses in Pennsylvania. Um, And some of the findings include that there have been over 1000 identifiable victims, um, more than 300 predator priests. And it's also accused um, it's accused these dioceses of failing to report what's been happening, endangering the welfare of children and obstruction of justice by people associated with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so a lot of I've, I've only gotten a few pages into this report and it, it is really, really tragic. Doesn't look good. No, yeah, looks- no, there's I mean, and the uh, Pennsylvania's attorney general, um, Josh Shapiro, had a press conference today when he introduced this report and he did he had some harsh words for the bishops for how they have um how how they've handled abuse Mm -hmm. he said uh, in one line he said predators in every diocese weaponized the catholic faith and used it as a tool of their abuse and that bishops were more concerned about protecting the institution than uh bringing these predators to justice and and sadly to bring up but it's also uh Sex abuse in the church is bigger than the United States. We've covered this in other parts of the world. Um, and there's also been a report out of England uh, this week that two Benedictine Abbey schools, uh, Ampleforth and Downside, have been, uh, There's there was a 220-page report there that found evidence of appalling sexual and physical mistreatment of children for more than 40 years at the beginning of ni- beginning in 1960. Um, and it's a lot of the same thing, a culture of prioritizing the people who are abusing children um, in their careers and their uh, public personas over truth and justice and the safety of children. And so even though it's tragic that there are new reports on sex abuse, it's important that we bring up these stories stories, that we need to cover them and we need to keep demanding accountability.
So joining us today in studio is Julio Ricardo Varela. He is the co-host of the Webby-nominated In the Thick podcast, a contributor to Latino USA and the founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome to Jesuitical, Julio. I am so excited to be on <laughs> Jesuitical. Honestly, well, I am super excited because I have been obsessed with you and Maria Hinojosa for a few years. So <laughs> I'm basically meeting a celebrity right now. Oh, please. No, <laughs> I, I'm a real person. Um, I also am obsessed with Maria Hinojosa. Like I always tell people. Um, I can't believe I get to work with her every day. She's, yeah, no, she, she's, she's fantastic. like the best. Right, right. No, she, she's fantastic. And so are you. So you founded a news website, Latino Rebels. Mm -hmm. um, and the importance of your work, I feel, was especially highlighted during Hurricane Maria. All the reports that are coming out this year saying that the initial death toll um, was incorrect. You guys actually reported like 12 days after the hurricane made landfall that these numbers were wrong. Um, so could you talk a little bit about why you decided to found this website? So I was watching like Jon Stewart one night. And I was like, he's a rebel. Like, I swear to God, I was like, I was like at two o'clock in the morning. I was like, he's a rebel. I'm Latino. And then I wrote Latino rebels on a piece of paper. And then I went to bed. And then when I woke up the next morning, I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty interesting idea. It's pretty metal. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, <laughs> all right. So let me like, so I bought the URL. I invited like 20 of my friends, journalists, digital people. I'm like, listen, I can't pay you, but. Let's do something interesting. Mm -hmm. And and we just were like saying, like, how do you portray the Latino experience in the 20th century? Like in, at the time, like I wasn't seeing me mm -hmm. in media and I was done complaining about it. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. So I'm really into like the history of like, for example, Rolling Stone magazine. Like I'm really like, how did that happen? Right. And it's just get a great bunch of writers, get an editor, publish, don't care do it again, rinse and repeat. And I've been very blessed because that's how I joined. Um, I, w I was on Al Jazeera English, uh, Al Jazeera America, and then I got to Maria Hinojosa in late 2014, 15, to work with uh, Futuro Media. And next thing you know, Latino Rebels is now part of Futuro Media. I get to do a podcast. I get to write. I mean, I've written, I've, you know, Olga edited me, my, my Jesuit debut. <laughs> and you both survived the writer-editor relationship. I, well, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was it, was, it was good. And I want to say I got well-received. Yeah, I, yeah. I would love to, I, I was really into the idea because it was talking about media and Latinos and representation. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just, things like that fascinate me, not only in the media, but even like just how people don't get the community as much as they mm -hmm. think they do. And I'm kind of like the guy that raises his hand. Right, right. Um, so you, you mentioned the piece that you wrote for us in America. So this is kind of good segue to the next oh, question. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so I find that, you know, as a person of color, a lot of stories like Hurricane Maria, police yeah. brutality, some of these are a lot harder to cover because you are this person that, mm -hmm. you know, like you mentioned in your piece, sometimes it feels like you are not given the freedom that a lot of white journalists are given. And you have. Oh, to I'm biased. I, I'm, I have an agenda. Right, right. Like, like, and you have to represent like your entire yeah, community. I have to represent every of the 55 million right, Latinos right. In, in the United States and and Puerto Rico, like mm -hmm. everything. Exactly. Right. I agree. with So you. what have been some of the most challenging stories you've had to report on? You know, there's a couple. Well, the one I I'll, I'll give you the recent one. Can I give you the recent one? The sure, Washington absolutely. Post, uh, Terrence McCoy, uh, white, comma, and then in the minority, came out like two weeks ago. It was a like a really like deep journalism. You know, you, you know when you know you know deep journalism is like you know eight thousand words mm -hmm. and really big pictures. But it's about these white workers in rural Pennsylvania and how they felt so out of place because these everyone was like puerto rican and dominican but the way that mccoy wrote it the, there wasn't any humanity in the 
like I said, it's like in the chicken plant, like mm-hmm. the Puerto Rican and Dominican workers, like you don't see a human face, but you see a lot of the two white workers in it, right? And so as the founder of Latino Rebels, um, we do a lot of group editorials. Like we our byline is by Latino Rebels. And we wrote it, edited it, published it, and basically said, Terrence McCoy, like you missed the boat big time. I think I said something that said, it was like a bad John Hughes teen flick movie with Latino zombies and <laughs> and reeked with xenophobia. And McCoy never wanted to engage me. And so I was on WBUR um, here and now on NPR and I got to say my piece, but he got to say it before. Like, so they had him and then I did. But not together. Not together, which I'm like, Why? I don't bite. Like what? So you should offer him ten thousand dollars to debate you. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, right. I did not offer him ten thousand dollars to debate me, which is like, um, totally. But I was just kind of like, why can't I talk to you as a journalist one on one? Like, why is it I? Why? Like, why do you get to defend your piece mm-hmm. and just be like, this is what I meant, and not take critiques from from other journalists? And and there's a part of me that's like, that's what I do. Like that, and but it's a challenge mm-hmm. because there's a lot of my journalist friends who have to work for editors who are like, uh, there's that problematic Mexican writer again <laughs> talking about immigration. And I think like that, that to me is a real elephant in the room when it comes to media and how journalists of color are viewed. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a challenge because I'm kind of like the jerk. All right. Would you say you're, you know what I'm saying? Like, is your I'm, audience more the mainstream media or do you see your audience as both readers of well the thing is it's really interesting because we do have a lot of young readers but mm. I, I think we tweeted this out like five years ago in latino rebels someone was like okay fess up journalists how many of you follow us to get story ideas hmm. and like like i'm talking legit journalists you're like yeah so we are do you think that's a bad thing or a no thing? it's not yeah. because it's not a bad thing because I get a lot of pride and joy in the fact that I have journalists read Latino Rebels, get it for stories, or go, hmm, never saw it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you say to the idea that journalism and advocacy sort of need to be two separate things? One is, you know, super objective and seeking the truth, and the other is too too biased and... I, you know... Deep sigh answer. Let me tell your listeners, (laughs) there was a... There was a... CBS news anchor by the name of Walter Cronkite in the 60s. And if you go to that YouTube uh, to see <laughs> some of his, um, you know, nightly broadcasts during the height of the Vietnam War, Walter Cronkite was biased and had an agenda. He's the greatest anchor in the history of the United States, I would say. Um, never really associated to advocacy and being biased. Wonder why? I don't know, maybe white male, who knows? Um, if if you talk about certain things, you're you instantly have a bias. So let me give you a perfect example that we talk about at Futuro Media all the time and on and on the podcasts, um, lynchings, right? When black people were lynched in the United States in the you know, turn of nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, Ida B. Wells covered that, you know, through the lens of an African-American woman looking at how this violence was impacting her community. What was her agenda? You know, like Ida B. Wells like was just telling the story through her lens. And I think that's the biggest thing that people miss, like don't understand about when it comes to objectivity or advocacy or biasness is that I'm telling the story about Puerto Rico 
through my Puerto Rican eyes. So this whole like, you know, to bring it back to the Jesuits, because I am <laughs> the proud graduate of Fordham Prep class of 86. Way to stay on brand. <laughs> bring it back to the Jesuits. One of the things that I learned in high school is like, if you believe in something and you want to fight for it, like be committed, be truthful, like do it with the heart. Like, that's why I tell Terrence McCoy, it's like, I'm not going to like rip your head off, dude. I'm, I'm respectful. Mm. Like I was, I went to a Jesuit high school. Come on. Um, Did you grow up Catholic? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I've, my mom is Bronx Italian. Okay. My dad is Puerto Rican. I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, every stereotype about Catholics in the seventies and eighties, I've, I've been, You've been through it. Yeah. Like I grew up in the Bay, like I lived in the Bainbridge section of, of the Bronx, which is a very predominantly Irish Catholic neighborhood. Um, I, like I said, I grew up, I was raised in Puerto Rico. My parents got divorced when I was like seven mm -hmm. and I moved up to, and I'd, I'd go between the Bronx and, and, um, and San Juan. And you know, did we have the, you go to my abuelos, like, yep, we had the sacred heart. We had, we had the, big giant crucifix that probably weighed like 800 pounds <laughs> over my grandparents like my abuelo's bedroom oh my god that's, <laughs> that's very Latino then, Catholic then you have, household like, the thing is you're walking through the house in Puerto Rico and you'd have like you know like Jesus like bleeding <laughs> with the lamb like in the hallway yeah you know what I mean and you're like yeah I I was surrounded by yeah. what, what's your relationship to the church like now um, I, I am a true lapse Catholic. Like I, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I live in the Boston area and I live in actually a very predominantly Irish Catholic Catholic part of Boston. But the scandals really, really, really bothered me. Like when it happened. So this it, is 2002. 2000, yeah, when yeah. the Globe and, and I still, you know, I raised my kid Catholic. Like we, it's not like they're not baptized and I don't get the confirmation thing anymore. Like, like my daughter did two years of like confirmation and I was like, where's the thing? Where's your name? And like, I just, why was I, it important for you to to raise your kids in the church? Because I think culture, I mean, I think it's more culturally like my, my wife is Boston Irish and they are like, you know, my, my mother-in-law is amazing. She's, mm -hmm. and I mean, they go to church, you know, they check the church schedule. They're like, who's speaking today? You know what I mean? Um, We, when we got married, we got married in this really you know a, a church that was built by irish immigrants in quincy massachusetts classic you know it was a th two and a half hour affair like it was a legit catholic wedding yeah like big time so yeah I'm, i would say how, what do you say now culturally catholic but i don't i mean I, i'll show up at easter and christmas yeah there i don't know but you know what i mean it's like but do you feel like it, i mean because uh, there's like sort of this scandal happening all over again. Yeah. Which, right now. And, yeah. And I was too young in 2002 mm -hmm. to really like mm -hmm. comprehend or understand any of that. So this is sort of my first time to be pissed off about everything. Yeah. And like even hearing you talk about that, it makes me just like so angry that you like had it taken from you. Like someone yeah. took your faith from well, you. Well, the thing is, it, and, and and I will say like Ford and Pro like Jesuits, it, like the, it was just, I mean, I used to go to Daily Chapel in high school. Like and, and every like we would go like some of us would go like we went to Emmaus retreats like some of my greatest like experiences as a high school student with my friends because we'd go on the Emmaus retreat with the Jesuits and I would be like this is so cool like and and what's interesting the thing is when the scandal broke in the Boston area is like we knew pe like we knew people who knew people yeah and 
it was really hard to see a really like e- even the pastor of our church in Milton, Massachusetts, he was he was pissed off. Like when it really broke and he went up there, I'll never forget that, in the homily, and he was like, I've been let down. And I was like, whoa. And I and the, and I, I do wonder like where the church goes next because you know from a Latin American perspective, because I I studied liberation theology in, in, in college, the history of liberation theology. And a lot of stuff that Latino Rebels does is sort of look at Latin American history and like, you know, how institutions kind of mess that up too. Like, for example, you take Archbishop Romero, who got killed in El Salvador. Um, He, there's an affinity, there's a love. A lot of young Latinos, mostly Central American kids Mm -hmm. who fled that war, like Bishop Romero is revered. Like, I'm glad he's being a saint. But right? he was a saint way before. Exactly. Areas, right. But but that's only one example. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and I just feel like when you look at the church now, you know, if I practice what I preach in terms of representation, then yeah, the church is kind of like mainstream media in a lot of ways. You so know, you it's think still, there are like no examples to look forward to in the church right now? I think they need like, I'll be honest with you, if you get me an African Pope or get me like a black Latino from the Dominican mm-hmm. and become Pope and I might be back. Well, a lot yeah, of, you know what I'm saying? What about like there have been a lot of Latinos who have seen like Pope Francis becoming Pope as a kind of like boom, yeah, like, moving in that direction, like the I, first Latino Pope, you know? Yeah, I bet he's from Argentina. True, <laughs> you know, true. Like, how many Argentine? I mean, not that. Please do not. I love Argentines. <laughs> I love everything about your food. I want to go to Buenos Aires. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but and and I I think Pope Francis is pushing in the right way, mm-hmm. but. He lost a lot of credibility with the Chilean scandal. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think the church with Latin Americans, yeah, Latino immigrants are saving the church in the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you think Do you think that's a real story? Like, do you think we're putting, like, too much hope in the idea that, like, the church in the U.S. is going to be saved because, like, we have all these young Latinos? <sighs> right now, I don't, I mean, if you still, if you start getting more news, like, out of Pennsylvania... Yeah, or places we, like that. We had a story I, in America I, by um, our uh, editor J.D. Long Garcia about how the Latino church in the U.S. H- hasn't really had the same sex abuse reckoning that the white church in like in the Boston area yeah. has. Um, yeah, because of like the cultural respect for clerics, it just like has been delayed. Yeah, but then you get something like Chile, right? Yeah. And then there's pockets, and like I do think the Pope. He did. Chile likes the so the, the scandal the though. There was a there. I believe it was a cardinal I, I, that he didn't speak as forcefully about it. And Francis, th- that is, yeah, yeah, Francis, Francis sort of didn't believe. Yeah, didn't believe, it. and and everyone, if he, every Chilean I know was like, okay, you're crazy, dude. Like, yeah. and I think like, I don't know. I I just think the history. I think the church is going through a really. It's like any institution. And it's an institution that's grounded in in like really patriarchal structures. I'd love to see women priests now. Like, come on, let's we got to move on. Like, it's 2018. I totally get that, but I think, and this could totally be because I work in Catholic media, so I think I get a perspective into the church. I feel like there's so much happening, even like with the writers that we encounter here. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the work that's being done at the local level, I feel like. Because the mainstream media doesn't focus on those parts of the no, church. No, no, I'm... Um, I think there could be. Like, there are people who are doing the work, you know, who are actually. Yeah, and I, I think like... one of the places that now not many people talk about, if you look at the immigrants' rights movement, if you look what's happening with the zero tolerance policy, and then you see those badass nuns mm-hmm. on the border who are like, let's, you know, 
there's a part of me that like from the Jesuit perspective, like I'm definitely of my Catholicism is definitely the warrior Catholic is definitely the fighter Catholic and the fighter Catholic in me, the rebel in me, like when I go to church, like I, I don't want to, like, I'm kind of like, I want to scream and, you know, I, I want to be like, guys, shake it up. Well, and the church is like, I think, diminished. And this is what, you know, is also so sad about, you know, you, you're talking about having your faith like taken or sh shaken yeah. by the abuse scandals that the church needs. We need the rebels, right? Yeah. We need the people shouting. And when you're not there, when they're not there, we are lost in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think there's a, enough of a history in the Catholic church to know that, you know, the change happened because someone decided to be like, we have to, you know, we got to do something different. Um, you know, there's a reason why Jesuits get expelled. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, there's a part of me. It's like, I, I will say like when you're in high school and you're like, mm, this is interesting. Wow. Maybe I should be a priest. Like I've, I was approached by two or three priests who I really loved and respected. Jesuit priests was like, have you thought about this? Because I was a, I was a nerd. I loved academics. I love to question things. Um, I never really followed up, but I was like, there, there are times I, when I look at my, my you know, how I have devolved or evolved, um, that I do remember being closer. And, and it's also because I, my grandmother, God bless her, Marie Biaggi, um, she would take us. Like, I just have really good memories of going to church with my Italian grandmother or my Puerto Rican grandparents. Like, I don't know. To me, yeah. it sounds like you miss it a little. I yeah. do. I do. I'm not, I'm like, that's why I say it's like, it's like at the three point line in basketball, <laughs> like they got to do something. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, right. Like you want to get people back in the seats. Um, it's really hard. And I think what the church is missing is sort of this next generation of people that are culturally Catholic who have an affinity. Like, I think you're right, Zach. It's like, I, I yeah, I, there's something, you know, I, when I go, I'm like, oh yeah, sign of peace. It's kind of cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, Gonna oh catch yeah, a cold, yeah, wow. I, this is, okay, I remember this. Um, but I think that if I'm going to go, the homily, it's, it's all about the homily. It's like, it's a performance, guys. I'm sorry. Like, it's like, I, I go on television, I go on podcasts, like, I'm performing. It's like the priests, like, I'm like, tell me why these two dudes in Judea that happened there, like, how does that apply to my life right. with my job? Like, that's the part where I feel people just like phone it in. And if you want to, like, I don't know, I, I sound like a marketer. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. like, come on, church. <laughs> I mean, the church could use some marketing. Advice. That's true. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Um, so final question for you. Mm. If you could canonize anyone, living <sighs> or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? You're chomping at the bits over there. <laughs> You're ready Just to go. One? Just, yeah. one. Just one. Just one. Just one. Uh, Roberto Clemente. Okay. And why is that? <laughs> not, not only because he's like the greatest Puerto Rican baseball player ever, <laughs> <laughs> who like changed the culture. Um, and I think what can, like I'm also going with the tragedy, like this is a Catholic in me. I'm going with tragedy as well. Cause isn't your tragedy is part of being Catholic. Oh yeah. Um, so the fact that he died so young and and I, I look at someone like Clemente who, man, if we had him now, like he was my first like idol. So I'd want St. Roberto 
Clemente. Okay, we'll take right. it. Pray for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank Hul- you for joining us. Where, where can people find your work? My Twitter handle, Julito77, J-U-L-I-T-O-7-7, um, latinorebels.com, inthethick.org. It's a political podcast with people of color, with Maria Hinojosa, and I get to like joke with her, so that's where you can find me. Awesome. Thank you again for yeah, coming thank you so on. Thanks for joining us. I, I had a blast. This is <laughs> the greatest studio ever. Man, Jesuits are like the best. <laughs> well, that's They're a good okay. sign off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. Uh, If you're wondering what all those names were that we listed at the beginning of the show, those are our supporters on Patreon. Um, If you've not checked out our Patreon page yet, please do so. Those are some of our supporters. Some of our supporters. And uh, over the next couple weeks, we're going to be acknowledging these supporters because we cannot continue to do the work that we do on this podcast without without your guys' support. Um, So through Patreon, you can make um, a monthly gift to Jesuitical, which covers, uh, you know, the cost of making this podcast. you know, this started as a passion project, something we really were committed to doing, but um, our bosses aren't going to let us keep doing this uh, if we can't cover our expenses. So we really, really appreciate the support that you all are giving us through Patreon. Um, and if you want us to continue doing this work and getting um, the big guests that you guys have recommended us going after, uh, we're going to need your continued support. At patreon.com slash Media. In other news, uh, Jesuitical t-shirts and all sorts of Jesuit swag are available for purchase online at jesuitswag.com slash Jesuitical. Uh, you can also get one of these t-shirts if you're a donor on Patreon. So there are multiple ways to get it. Uh, but if you've seen that baller t-shirt that we have, because it is pretty it's sweet. So and we have other things like buttons and all kinds of stuff. Laptop so check it out. Stickers. Yep. Jesuitswag.com slash Jesuitical. All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? So I have a desolation this week, and it is very much related to the uh, sex abuse crisis that's been breaking for, it seems like, months now, and it continues to break. Uh, I actually took sort of the weekend off from being, you know, a Catholic journalist. I was out of town. Um, But nonetheless, I, you know, couldn't help but following up on these stories and i think being away gave me some some new perspectives and like allowed me to feel the anger and frustration and for the first time i really felt like you know working at an organ of the catholic church that i was like ministering like in sort of like a house of filth i don't know you're hearing about all these things that people have done to protect their integrity uh and it's not just like I'd gotten used to the idea that I'd worked alongside sinners, but like not just like heinous criminals. Yeah. And that uh, I've really felt the weight of that, I think, fully uh, for the first time recently. And the desolation here is that I, I can feel myself being called to ask myself, why, why am I staying in the church? Why am I staying in this ministry? Uh, and the initial hesitation there is that I don't really want to dig into that. I, I don't know. There's like a fear and anxiety surrounding that. And the desolation is paying attention to that fear and not the invitation because I'm clearly being called to investigate this and pray about it. And I don't know. I just, but, uh, but it's hard. On the other hand, I feel like I am just supposed to sit with this for a while before I really dig into some type of 
pious reasoning about why I'm still here. And so that's where my desolation is this week. Yeah, we'll be right next to you working through that too. Yeah. What do you got, Ashley? Um, I also have a desolation. Um, so you guys know I love you so much. Um, but last week when our new episode came out, it was it was titled uh, the one where two of the Jesuitical hosts get engaged. And like my first just like gut reaction was just like, ouch, <laughs> like I'm not one of those two. Um, and so, of course, I'm happy for you. And I'm happy for my best friend who's also engaged in getting married next year. But intention with that happiness is also this like this voice in my head that's like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing wrong? When is this going to happen to you? Um and like I know, and I know that that's not God's voice. So I guess that's the desolation is the fact that I'm like still hearing this voice that's telling me that like there's something wrong with me, and that's the reason that you know I'm not <laughs> on the marriage track yet. <laughs> um, so just like struggling with like like really trying to being happy for people in my life who are experiencing this wonderful thing. Um, but also like my own feelings of like, it's my turn <laughs> has been kind of desolating recently. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ashley, that you've been dealing with that. But, you know, I'm just going to repeat it. You're amazing. <laughs> and I'm just going to, Zach and I will just continue repeating that to you until you believe it yourself. <laughs> because we really, we really love you and you're fantastic and you should not like give into those thoughts. Yeah. Thanks, Olga. Thanks, Zach. You didn't say anything. I was nodding. I was <laughs> nodding. He, he was nodding. I, I looked. We made eye contact. I spoke for him. You know, it, it, he's tired. It's been a long week for him. I know. <laughs> Sometimes in face sharing groups, you just like you, you, the listeners don't get to see. Like you just have to like sit and love yeah, someone in silence. And right. that's yeah. what's happening. I know. Actually, I feel loved. I okay, good. What do you got, Olga? Um, so I've got what I thought was a desolation at first, but um, Father Eric Sondrup in true Jesuit fashion pulled out the consolation from within. Um, so I've talked in previous episodes about the relationship I have with Enoch's parents. And it's been very, very strained. Um, and like us getting engaged has just made that even more um, apparent. Um, so I've been in a really dark, like I got to a point where I just kind of accepted like, oh, they're never going to like me. We're never going to have a good relationship. Um, and then this week they're just like, okay, we want to invite you to church with us this Sunday and to have lunch with us. And my initial thought was just like, well, what are their intentions? Like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to like overwhelm me and just continue telling me a lot of the things that I've already been feeling um, from them? But sitting with Eric and kind of just like processing this uh, through prayer, um, I've realized that I have been praying for God to do exactly what he's doing. Um, it's taken some time, but they're opening their doors for me, you know? Um, and I think I need to not give in to the that voice that's telling me like, oh, you know, they're just like really mean people who don't care about you and they're trying to do this, this and that and just realizing like, no, you've prayed for this um, and this is where you are. Um, and I guess the consolation is that is just being able to like see God in the relationship that I have with them, even when there isn't really a relationship yet, but just kind of not going, moving away from that hope, you know? That's really impressive. Like I, like I can't imagine how hurtful it would be to like face the kind of rejection you have from them um mm -hmm. and to still be big-hearted enough to like be willing to like take a step towards them if they're if they're opening the door mm -hmm. it's like yeah. really impressive it's taken a lot of tears uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i'm here today <laughs> i get the co-host with like the two strongest women in the catholic world and i'm 
so grateful. Stop. You're really going to make us cry right now. I can't. I can't can't deal with this. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Gus Hardy. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup SJ. Engineering by Leo Stupner SJ. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to no one. Come on, guys. We need more wah, reviews. Wah. <laughs> and send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.